Welcome to Plainfield Christian Church. Go ahead and have a seat this morning. Um, man, what about Mark Proctor on a keytar? Does anybody else get excited about that? I mean, it's not as good as Jesus, but it's pretty good. Hey, uh, welcome to Plainfield Christian. Our mission is to love all people to new life in Christ. Anybody else with us on that? Anybody else experiencing new life today? Well, that's why we're going to have a sermon so that we can do this, right? Um, if you're new or visiting, we especially want to welcome you. You can get to know us out in the Connection Center after the service. We have lots of opportunities for you to grow, um, to know who Jesus is, and to follow him and to serve in this church and in our community. And so, um, or if you're an introvert like I am, you can go online because then you don't have to talk to anybody, right? Uh, you can go online and figure out who we are. But we do encourage you to, um, to pursue us, and, and we want to pursue you and walk with you wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Maybe you're here today and you've got some questions, some spiritual questions, and we, we want to help you find the answers. We may not have all the answers, but we want to help you find them and walk with you in that. Go ahead and uh, register your attendance on your connection card if you would. I've forgotten to announce that in all four services because in case you haven't noticed, I'm not the normal guy. Um, Steve White, our lead pastor, is away today on vacation getting some, some rest. He's modeling Sabbath for us. Anybody else need a Sabbath sometimes? Yeah. So he's away today, and I'm pinch-hitting for him, and I'm just so excited to share the Word of God with you. Speaking of the Word, let's open up to Matthew chapter 20, the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 20. And uh, anybody want to hear a story about Jesus? Really? I don't believe you. All right, I'm not going to play that game. But, you know, uh, Matthew is this amazing book Matthew was so smart in how he wrote this book because in it, he tells us all about how Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. He is the fulfillment of the whole story of God and Israel told in the Old Testament, that big fat part of your Bible that no one likes to read. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that, and Matthew very brilliantly weaves these stories together to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised king in the line of David who is going to come and inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. Jesus is a new and better Moses. Um, you know how Moses, like all these stories in the Old Testament about Moses and, and how they relate to Jesus. I mean, Moses 40 years in the desert, Jesus 40 days in the desert. Moses leading the people of Israel through the Red Sea. Jesus going, passing through water and baptism. I mean, there's so much of that stuff, but Jesus is the better Moses. And then, um, sorry, I just saw myself up there and I'm moving around. Sorry, guys. Um, and then, over all that, Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And so this whole book is about the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And um, today, we're going to look at how this Messiah thing is a little bit different than people, what people were expecting. Um, this vision of the Messiah, Jesus totally turns both his disciples' view of the Messiah and our own views upside down. So um, again, we're in Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to start reading today in verse 17. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and follow along here. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, see, we're going to, up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, 
and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two fine young boys of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Uh, and then he turns to the, to the boys. They're not boys, they're men. But he says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they, say, they respond to Jesus and say, yeah, we are able. And so Jesus says to them, okay, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It is only for the Father, for, for whom it has been prepared by my Father, for those who, for whom it has been prepared. And when the other ten heard it, they're overhearing this conversation, and when they heard this conversation going on, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them all to him and said, look, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Hear me. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's the only thing we have to go on. It is the only thing that reveals who you are and who we are and what your world is like and what your world should be like. And so, Father, we want to study it today. We want to listen to your voice. Would you please, please speak to us? Every person in this room is coming from a different place, different circumstances, but you have one message for each of us today. Would you, by your spirit, open our minds and open our hearts to receive? Would you speak to us today? In Christ's name, amen. So Jesus and his entourage, his boys, are on the way to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And this is a big deal, okay? Passover festival every year, all the Jews uh, glom on to Jerusalem. So traffic was totally insane on the road. And so Jesus has something to, to tell his disciples privately because what he's about to tell them are for their ears only. He's been, he's been in with the crowds and teaching and healing and all this stuff. But what he's about to tell them is so heavy that he pulls them aside, and to read this story well, we have to understand what the disciples are thinking. Like, we have to put ourselves in their shoes and kind of what they're thinking about. The disciples were expecting to go to Jerusalem with Jesus and for him to march into town or ride into town on a white horse, whatever, and overthrow the Roman government, inaugurate God's kingdom on heaven, throw out the oppressive pagan regime, and bring God's kingdom come. This is what all of their hopes and dreams were centered on. But Jesus tells them that the Son of Man isn't going to Jerusalem to do all that. He's actually going to be handed over to the priests and to the Bible teachers there and sentenced to die 
And he's going to be mocked and beaten. And eventually he's going to be crucified by the Romans because they're the only people who could crucify people. And then after three days, he would be raised from the dead. That's not what the disciples were expecting. You have to, you have to go back to the Old Testament. They were, when Jesus uses the term son of man, this, our minds should go back to the Old Testament and think, what does son of man mean? And, and anybody in here ever read the book of Daniel? Some of the crazy, scary stuff in the book of Daniel about the end of the world and God judgment and all this stuff. Son of man, this idea comes from Daniel chapter 7. And, and Daniel's having this crazy dream, okay? And this is, what, this is what he writes. In my vision at night I looked, and there was before me one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days. He approached God himself. And was led into his presence. And the Son of Man was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus says Son of Man, these are the aspirations. These are the hopes and dreams of of his followers. These are the hopes and aspirations of all of Israel. But apparently, this was completely lost on Jesus' disciples. They just didn't get it. They were so focused on their hopes and their dreams and their agenda that they've already missed Jesus predicting twice that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. He did it once in chapter 16, once in chapter 17. Now he's doing it again in chapter 20. So three times they've ignored him. And Matthew draws attention to this kind of discreetly by moving on. He doesn't record a response to them. To Jesus. He just goes right into the next, the next story about this mom and her sons. Now, you might remember the sons of Zebedee, these guys uh, from Matthew chapter 4. They're out on a boat with their dad, fishing, doing the family business, and Jesus walks up and says, Hey, you guys, follow me. And they're like, See you, dad. All right. We're going to go follow this prophet. They follow Jesus. They leave their dad in the boat. And um, they're, they're disciples of Jesus now. And Jesus, I think this is hilarious. He actually has a nickname for these guys. Anybody remember what the nickname is for these, these guys? It's the sons of thunder. Jesus calls them uh, the sons of thunder. It sounds like a motorcycle gang. And you really probably wouldn't be too far off with that characterization of, of James and John. In Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us this, I think it's a funny story, um, a funny story about Jesus and his disciples going into a Samaritan village, and Jesus does some stuff, and, and the Samaritans reject him. And so James and John come up to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven and smoke these people? And Jesus looks at him and is like, no, this is not, guys, calm down, just calm you need to calm down, like anger management kind of stuff going on here. So this is the character of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were just a little bit aggressive. And their mom was actually, we think that she was actually Jesus' aunt. Her name was Salome, and we think that she was probably Mary's sister. So these two knuckleheads are coming up, and like, I can just imagine them pushing their mom toward Jesus and go, ask him ask him, ask him, if, you know, like, like they're kind of cowering behind, hiding behind her. And of course, what mom doesn't want the best for her kids? 
So she comes, she acquiesces and comes up to Jesus, but she kneels before him. Even though Jesus is her nephew and related, which by the way, there's a whole family dynamic going on here. Do you see that kind of messed up thing going on? Anyway, so she kneels before him because he is the Messiah and asks, well, can, when you reign, can my boy sit with you in the places of honor? Now, did these guys want to be next to Jesus just because they loved him so much? Did they want to be next to Jesus just because they wanted to worship him and be just so close to him that they just wanted to be in his presence all the time? My, thing, my, my thought here is that, yeah, that's probably part of it. But like all of us, they probably had mixed motivations, right? You catch a rising star when they're you know, coming into power, and then when they actually come into power or get famous, you're in the inner circle, and then now you have status and significance. I actually think that these guys were after the status and significance. They didn't want to be close to Jesus because they loved him, maybe a little bit, but they wanted to be close because, man, they were interested in what Jesus could do for them. You know? It's like name droppers. Do you like name droppers? Oh, I was hanging out with, you know, Peyton Manning the other day. Sorry, I don't know why I thought of Peyton Manning. I don't know, I'm new to Indianapolis, so you might love him or hate him, so don't hold that against me. Jesus' response, the, the thing we're getting at here is he looks at Aunt Salome and says, look, you don't know what you're asking. And he turns to the brothers and he says, can you, can you guys drink this cup that I'm gonna drink? And here's another, here's another important Old Testament thing to realize. The cup symbolized in this instance, the cup symbolized the cup of Yahweh's wrath and judgment. Think of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they, they talk about these pagan nations, these oppressive pagan nations who are just awful, and God promising that they are going to drink the cup of Yahweh's wrath to the dregs, and they're gonna, it's going to cause them to stagger. Right? This is a picture, this is an image of God's judgment. And what Jesus is saying here, he says, I'm actually going to drink this cup of God's wrath. I'm going to meet the powers of destruction head on. I'm innocent, but I'm going to die the death of a guilty person. Even though, even though I've been preaching this message of like love and peace and all that stuff, I'm going to be crucified as though I was stirring up rebellion against the empire. To reign with me, you guys, James and John, to reign with me, you have to also suffer with me. Can you drink this cup? And I don't know if it was out of overconfidence or ignorance or what it was. It was probably both. But they're like, yeah, we can do that. Do it. And so Jesus turns to him and says, okay, you, you guys are going to actually drink this cup. And we know this, this happens, right? In Acts chapter 12, uh, Dr. Luke records for us that James actually is put to death by Herod Antipas. And then later on, John, who wrote the Revelation, right, gets exiled, exiled to the island of Patmos. These guys were going to suffer and be persecuted because of Jesus. Now, What's the other disciples' reaction to this? They're standing over here, and they're looking at all this going on, and they just get really ticked off. They're the Bible says they're indignant. They're just fuming mad. And is it because they're standing around going, you guys 
should be more humble. Guys, why aren't you more humble? That's not the way. I don't think that they're standing around doing that. I think that they're ticked off at these guys because they're actually exploiting a family relationship to get inside Jesus' inner circle, like they're vying, jockeying for position, and these guys relate to the ball game. They relate to the party. It's the ultimate version of fear of missing out is what these guys are experiencing. So Jesus has had enough. He calls them all over to him and says, look, the Gentile rulers, the rulers of this world, for instance, the Romans, they, they have power and they use it to dominate others. They have influence and they use that influence to control and manipulate people. And if they can't control and manipulate people, they break their kneecaps and get rid of them. That's how the world uses power. But that's not the way it's going to be among my followers. Notice the language that he uses here. It's command language. He says, it shall not be so. Where else in scripture do we hear shalls and shall nots? Like the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus is commanding his disciples, it shall not be so. This is not the way it's going to be with y'all. He goes on to tell them that the seats of honor in my kingdom are actually reserved for the servants and for the slaves. These were the two lowest positions in Jewish society. You couldn't get any lower than that. And what Jesus does in this teaching is he actually reverses their significance and says these are the people, the servants and the slaves are the ones who have honor in the kingdom of heaven. Now, time out. This is hard for us to imagine because we live in a different time and place. But in that time, in first century Palestine, this was absolutely revolutionary. We tend to think of people like who are humble as, that's a positive trait, right? He's so humble. I like her so much. She's so down to earth, right? That is not how it was thought of in the ancient world. In the ancient world, we had an honor and shame culture, and you tried to get as much honor and as much status and as much significance and power and wealth and influence as you possibly can because your self-identity and your value as a human being rested on those things. And conversely, you avoided shame at all costs because, again, if you had no significance or status or any of this stuff, you had no value as a human being. Humility was not a virtue, it was actually a vice. To lower yourself would have been thought shameful. And Jesus says, look, I'm the son of man, the son of man, Daniel, the son of man. And I didn't come to be waited on, but to lay down my life for others. And I'll do you one better, guys. Servants and slaves, I'll do you one better. How about crucifixion? The most shameful place that you could end up in the Roman world, way below being a servant or slave. And the whole time he says, this, I, I am the son of man. This is actually what it looks like when Israel's God becomes king. The crucifixion of Jesus was the enthronement of Jesus. Jesus saw himself as the son of man, but he was also the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Go read that this afternoon. He was the king who serves his people by giving his life for them. And he uses this word ransom in verse 28. 
Ransom is this word that has to do with money paid to release a slave. He says, I'm giving my life as a ransom for many, in place of many, as a substitute for many. And this is how the substitution works. Jesus, perfect, righteous, holy, deserving of life and glory and honor, receives death. Humans who are awful and terrible, just read the newspaper if you don't believe me, awful, deserving death, but receiving life because Jesus died in our place. Later on, his apostle Peter, his disciple Peter would write, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. How does this idea of a crucified king fit with our worldview? Who, who in our world today gets to be great? Who, who gets honored? Who gets to be in positions of power? Who gets to be on TV? Who gets to tell people what to do in our world? How, how are we seeking significance in our life? Are we seeking positions of power and influence are we, are we seeking recognition and fame? Like, look, you might not want to be the CEO of a company, but wouldn't it be nice to be able to tell the people around you what to do <laughs> sometimes? Like your kids or your coworkers? Like, wouldn't you like a little more influence? Wouldn't you like to be listened to a little bit more? Wouldn't you like people to respect what you think and go and agree? Yeah, that's, you're brilliant. Am I the only one who thinks that? We might not want to be world famous because that would make us feel uncomfortable, but wouldn't you like to kind of be well-known in, in your circle? We like to be important because we are human beings. The problem is when we chase after that stuff, the significance and the power and the influence and all that stuff, we think we're climbing a ladder, but we're actually going in a downward spiral and we end up feeling emptier and more desolate than ever because you get to the top of the food chain and there's nothing left. And we've, we've seen this. We've read, we've seen the movie, right? We've seen each true Hollywood story and all that stuff. Like there is nothing there except the desire for more and more and more and more. And it's just, it's awful. Look, the desire to be well-known, Jesus is saying the desire for greatness and the desire to be important, these are not the ways of a follower of Jesus, the way of a follower of Jesus is to be like Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God as a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And then, being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. He's the suffering servant. He is the King who suffers on behalf of his people to bring them to new life. He takes the, the cup of God's wrath and drinks it down to the dregs. And now, guess what? He is calling us as the church to be a people who will submit to his reign and to reflect that kind of greatness into a confused, broken world that doesn't get it. 
Would the world look just a little bit different if, if people obeyed Jesus? The answer is yes, by the way. He's calling us to show what real greatness looks like. We are supposed to lay down our lives so that others might flourish. What does that look like in your, in your family or in, in your marriage? How, how can you be a servant? Uh, how can you serve your jerk boss at work or your coworkers or, or your schoolmates or wherever you are and whoever you're with? How can you be a servant? This is what true love is. It's desiring and working for the flourishing of others. And, and Jesus is teaching us this serving. Serving is the pathway to significance. If you try to get it any other way, you're going to be heartbroken. Serving is the pathway to significance. We've got so many opportunities to practice this here as a church. We can get connected and rock babies in the nursery, or we can serve on a hospitality team, or we can do all this stuff here. We can also do it in the neighborhood. We can do this everywhere, but we are called to practice this and live this out. What if, you know, Steve's in this series, and I love this, we're giving up. We're, we're reflecting this season that other churches follow called Lent, which prepares us for the cross, for Good Friday. It's all going to the cross. What if today... In this season, we crucified our desire to be important and significant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. How are we going to respond to that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit which is moving in us. We pray that you would take this message and move it more deeply into our hearts and minds. Not So we don't just sit here and agree with it, but that we actually live this out. What would our church look like? What would our families look like? What would our community look like if we lived this out? And Father, I pray that, um, I pray that whoever's here today who isn't walking with you and can't live this out without your Holy Spirit living in them, I, I pray that they will see the truth of the gospel that Jesus has laid down his life so that we might be reconciled to the giver of all life. I pray that they might believe that today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.